I believe as a scholar of religion that every religion has a particular genius, guiding spirit, and brilliance of insight that everyone can learn from. I am struck by some theologians who think that everyone should have a secondary religious tradition. You study and embrace another tradition to keep you honest. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith with Dr. Lori L. Patton. She's the 17th president of Middlebury College, ranked number five in U.S. News and World Report's classification, National Liberal Arts Colleges. A leading authority on South Asian history and culture. We'll get into some of that in just a minute. I have to jump right to this. First of all, thank you for being here. I'm delighted to be here. So is this in your spare time? You translated the ancient Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita for Penguin Classics. Well, it's it's a little over 700 verses. Uh-huh. And if you have a certain plotting aspect to your personality, which I do, I'm a very, my husband will tell you, I'm a very determined person. You just do a couple verses a day, a couple shlokas is what it's called in Sanskrit a day. And eventually, 365 days in a year, you get it done and then you go back and revise. So it actually became, the translation process became somewhat of a spiritual discipline for me. I was going to ask, not just reading it and gleaning something from it, but having to think through it in that way to to whole other idioms or whatever it might be. What was that experience spiritually? It was a a great experience. I will begin by saying that there is no reason for the 251st translation of the Bhagavad Gita (laughs) into English, right? No good intellectual reason. But Penguin's edition was 50 years old. They wanted sort of a youngish female person, and so I fit that bill. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, what do the other translations maybe not have? I had no illusions that I was going to do a definitive translation. I don't Mm -hmm. believe that that really exists as a thing. So there were three things. One is a sense of poetry. A lot of times the Gita is translated as prose or philosophy, and it's deeply poetry. It's in verse. Which I should mention, you are a published poet, and this is in your wheelhouse. It is totally in my wheelhouse. And then the second is the sense of concrete imagery. There's a lot of philosophy in the Gita, but there's a lot of beautiful imagery about light and sun and animals and so on. And the third is a sense of humor. I know that sounds silly, but there are a lot of epithets in the Gita and the conversation between Krishna and Arjuna, Krishna the deity and Arjuna the charioteer, they call each other a lot of names. And I thought, what would it look like if it was really understood almost like a teasing, affectionate way of thinking about the apathets? So those three things, I thought, well, I can contribute those three things. Dedicated to my American Hindu students who wanted a kind of down-to-earth translation Mm -hmm. of the Gita. And I've been really, it's so much fun because you get letters from housewives in London who were studying it as part of their study group, or you get letters from pilots in Japan. I mean, all these wonderful people from all over the world. And um, that's been incredibly rewarding. We're beneficiaries of the fact that you're on campus, thanks to the Richard L. Evans Chair of Religious Understanding, delivering the third annual World Interfaith Harmony Week lecture. And of course, 
you apply your writing skills and maybe even a little bit of clickbait in your title, which is <laughs> The Doorkeeper, The Choir Boy, and The Singer of Psalms. Can you give me just a vision of what that is about sure. interfaith work? Sure. What I'm going to talk about this evening is the idea of pragmatic pluralism. And what that is, is what are the moments in interfaith relationships which are not episodic, they're not one moment, they're not one meaning, but they're structured relationships that last a lifetime. So that, as I define pragmatic pluralism, one religion needs another religion to be itself. In mm-hmm. other words, Hindus need Jews to be Jews, or Jews need Muslims to be Muslims. And what are those contexts in which that happens? And so the choir boy and the doorkeeper are all moments in interreligious history where something happened in an interreligious context that allowed both members of a tradition to be themselves. I'll give away one story from tonight, and that is during the war when Yugoslavia broke up in the 90s. There was in a Bosnian monastery um, a monk who decided to just to your interests, keep the musical tradition going no matter what. Bombs falling, Muslim Christian villages Mm. at war with each other. And someone kept appearing in the choir practice of the monastery. And he said, you know, I don't know this person and they're not a monk. And so he finally went up to them. He would come and sing beautifully. And he said, well, are you interested in the monastery? And he said, no. He said, well, are you interested in converting to Christianity? He said, no. Where do you come from? I come from a Muslim village next door. He said, so tell me why you're here. And he said, I'm just a better Muslim when I sing in your choir. And so that's a moment, (laughs) you know, where there's this ongoing relationship. He needs the monk to be a Christian choir director, but he knows that his Muslim faith is deepened by virtue of his relationship. That is an ongoing one that is artistic. And there are people, not ill-intentioned, who would think, why would I need to talk to people of other faiths who are outside of my circle. Why would I spend the time doing that? I'm kind of working on myself in my own faith. Right, right. So, yes, and and I would say good. That's exactly where people who need to be there should be there. My assessment of the world at the moment is that the way I put it is that there are no more distant strangers. There are Ah. only proximate ones. In other words, the strangers that are strange to us are actually also near to us. They are down the street. They are only, a, you know, as you were saying, a click away. And as a result, I think that's true. And I think we've all acknowledged that as a global reality. But in terms of interreligious coexistence, we haven't taken advantage of that proximity to think about lasting relationships where we can still maintain our difference. Yeah. I want to delve back your earliest memories of what <laughs> the divine was or a faith practice, any of that. Was it part of the home you grew up in? Oh, that's such a great question. No one has ever asked me my earliest religious memories before. That's really great. I was raised Unitarian. And as you may know, Unitarians have what was then in the 60s and 70s called the Church Across the Street curriculum, which Mm -hmm. meant as a Unitarian, your job was to study all the other religions as well as your very reform version of Christianity. And so I just thought, that was what religion was. I also grew up in what was then, you know, 300 years ago called Salem Village, which is where the witch trials happened in American history. And so I have a very deep understanding of how history can affect people's consciousness. Yeah. And I also have a deep understanding and connection to the New England landscape. So my earliest religious memories were 
a kind of very intense study of plants and the woodlands of New England and having discovered a spirituality in the New England landscape. I think it's one of the reasons why after having left New England, I came back to be in Vermont. And many of my friends who grew up in places like Utah and Western landscapes describe New England landscape as the mountains in a teacup because <laughs> it is a kind of miniature version of a lot of things. But I find it a very deeply spiritual landscape. And I think the Native Americans who lived and thrived there understand it that way too. Um, so that would be the way I originally engaged with the spiritual understanding of the world. There is a spiritual understanding that we're given because of where we grow up, who we mm -hmm. grow up with. And yours was, it sounds like, broader than most. Mm -hmm. But at some point, there's either, I think, a connection with something divine or an abandonment of that as right. a, a nice set of guidelines for living. And right. is there something in your life that you feel like, this is why I use the word faith and belief. There right. is something. So... Yes, I, I like the way you talk about that. I think some social activists would talk about that as a moment of obligation. Mm. Like there's a moment in your life when you need to be obligated somehow. That mm -hmm. could be commitment to service. That could be commitment to a divine. It could be both. Mm. So I think what I missed in the Unitarian tradition, as rich as it was intellectually, was a sense of a calendar and time and seasonality. Mm. And I miss the idea that you could observe holidays. And so I became, as a scholar, very interested in liturgies and festivals. Some of my poetry is around that. But the tradition that felt the most resonant for me was Judaism. And so in 1999, I converted to Judaism. So I would say leading up to that was a journey in which I felt how can I find a spiritual environment where I am my best self? That'd be one way to put it. And I think that sense of the divine was always there, even though I'll always be committed to the study of Indian religion, I will always be inspired by it. I knew that I had a Western sensibility in terms of my own spirituality. I love irony. I love to be humorous when I can. I love argument, which is argument amongst a committed group of friends. And Which seems very Jewish. Exactly. And you got it. And sometimes that circle of argument can include God. Exactly. Which is not standard procedure for a lot of the other denominations. I think that's right. And that's another thing that I felt is that doubt is a perfectly good part of a Jewish tradition. So doubt, argument, also scholarly work, um, all of that put together in a package. I will also say that my mother, when uh, I was born in my first early years of childhood, she struggled a lot with mental health issues. So I never really connected to her. I felt her loss, mm. um, even though later we connected. And I always found the Jewish sense of loss and the embrace of loss and mourning a very powerful part of Jewish spirituality. and Not just they're in a better place. A hundred percent, right. And so I felt that there was a kind of honesty to that, and that was because I think for the rest of my life I was always trying to make sense of that initial sense of loss, even though it was recovered later. I love that sense of honesty about what the entirety of human experience is about. 
So your time in India, what took you there? Was that intellectual curiosity or a pilgrimage? Yeah. Or, or can those just blend, wash together. into the other? Right, right. You ask great questions, by the way. <laughs> um, so my senior year at Harvard, there are these travel fellowships, and they call them find-yourself fellowships, right, where you dream, and if you dream articulately enough on your proposal, then you get funded for a year. <laughs> and so my major at Harvard was religion, and my minor was Celtic studies, Irish and Scottish. And I studied for a year at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and got really interested in sacred wells and ponds that were all over the Hebrides as well as in Ireland. And show up in King Arthur. They and, show up in yeah. King Arthur. All of that is right there. And I did my senior thesis. It feels very sweet. The title now is um, The Idea of the Sacred Spring in Celtic Tradition. And I looked at all the different folkloric traditions around pilgrimage to sacred water sources in Ireland. Mm. The way that scholars make sense of medieval Irish mythology, which is entirely mediated by Christian monks, is to turn to Indo-European tradition and Sanskrit and Sanskrit tradition. So I became very interested in the linguistic and mythological parallels between the two most conservative outposts of Indo-European civilization, one of which is in Ireland, the other of which is in India. And so they preserve a lot of features that are similar. So I dreamed on paper to the Sheldon Selection Committee, the Sheldon Fellowship, could I just go on these pilgrimages in Ireland, some of which I'd gone on, but not all of them, and to all the river sources in India as well that I could think of. That was what I did. But when you're 23 and you're given a lot of money to do whatever you want, it's exhilarating, but it's also kind of daunting because... 18 to 22-year-olds, I can say, as somebody who leads them now, the power of choice can be overwhelming mm. for someone in that space. And so I did exactly that. I was very kind of a good girl, and I did exactly what I said I was going to do. And I spent that year going on pilgrimage with pilgrims to the sacred river sources in India and interviewing them, talking to them about their reasons for being pilgrims. And I also interviewed mostly women who worshipped at the smaller wells and ponds in the sacred city of Varanasi, Benares. Mm. And I have some amazing material from that time. I think I would say as a listener, as a learner, I was transformed by the motivations of so many pilgrims. People go on pilgrimage to honor their husband that they just lost. They yeah. go on pilgrimage to show gratitude for a sudden windfall that they weren't expecting. There are all these really interesting life transformational events that people go on pilgrimage to do. And listening to their stories as they're walking was deeply moving to me. So it changed me for sure. Did I go as a Hindu? No. Did I go as a listener who is probably intellectually Hindu? Yes. And that was what was so moving. These two traditions that you have delved into that deeply, both with the Bhagavad Gita and also Judaism, I mean, yeah. these are thousands of years into the past. Right. Why do you think they're still relevant? Hmm. I believe as a scholar of religion that every religion has a particular genius, mm -hmm. guiding spirit, and brilliance of insight that everyone can learn from. I am struck by some theologians who think about the idea that everyone should have a secondary religious tradition, meaning whoever you are, you could be uh -huh. LDS, you could be you know, Reformed Jew, you could be Muslim – 
but you study and embrace another tradition to keep you honest, yeah. to go out and figure out questions that you wouldn't ask if you just stayed in your, to your point earlier, if you just stayed in your in your. That space. sounds like uh, learning Spanish, and that teaches you more about your native English, if that's, or whatever it might be. Yep. And as a Middlebury person, very committed to languages, I agree with you completely. That's exactly mm. right. So I think the Hindu worldview, there's a you know, Sanskrit phrase that it's variously quoted, but ekam vatam, one voice, bahuda varante, but it is spoken by many people. And so that idea of the relationship between the unity and the plurality, that's a very old idea that I think Hinduism embraces most powerfully. Mm. It even has, you know, you have these Jewish, I was part of uh, Jewish Hindu conversations. One of the things that happens quite frequently is um, Jewish perspectives on monotheism are very powerful. And they have a hard time with the idea of a polytheism or what some people call a polymorphic theism, of, you mm. know, a deity that is many different forms. And the visual aspects are also very hard. But what's the most interesting about those conversations is when a Hindu would hear about the Jewish commitment to monotheism, a Hindu would say, oh yeah, we have those too. We have what's called nirguna, which is the God without qualities. We have that too. You know, so there's a sense of everything, you know, kind of works. So I think that's Hinduism's genius, that long lasting. Yeah. If we need that sensibility, we really need it today. And Judaism, I think, I'm going to talk about this tonight also, it has been able to thrive in its difference and still remain connected to the outside world, and yet also have a faithfulness to its own identity that I think in today's world of identity politics, as well as thinking through multiple identities and intersectionality and all the stuff that folks are thinking about in the work in identity studies, I think the Jewish perspective on identity is a particularly helpful one because mm. Jews who are, you know, different flavors, obviously, and there's all sorts of arguments within Judaism, but that strength of identity and the warmth and connection to others is a balance that I think is pretty profound and Jews have done very well. Do you have or have you had, or does this evolve over time, personal practices that you feel connect you to something holy and divine? Absolutely, yeah. I'd say a couple things about that. The first is the idea of study and regular study is very important mm. to me. I think of study as a sacred practice. I usually live up to that. There's a wonderful approach to scholarly study which makes a distinction between reading for use and consumption and reading for contemplative purposes. When I'm being the most committed Jewish person I know how to be, and even the best scholar I know how to be of India, I'm reading contemplatively. Uh, my second book of poems, which follows the Jewish year, is a contemplative reading of a single line of each of the weekly readings in the five books of noses. And so that is one of the most important spiritual practices that I have. And it's also really hard to do. It's like eating mindfully. You're going to eat. You're going to read as a scholar. And then you're like, wait a second, stop. How do you read mindfully? So that would be n number one. Um, the second is the observance of the Sabbath. It's very interesting that, you know, I'm sure you hear this a lot in other religious conversion stories, but I am, you know, I do too much and overdo it. And <laughs> by Thursday or Friday morning, I have a horrible migraine. What happens is you go, you know, full tilt and then you stop. And that for people who get migraines, 
that's what happens. So in preparing for the Sabbath, what you do when you observe the Sabbath is you you have to cook a meal. You have to slow down in the middle of the afternoon. You have to get the challah and the bread and so forth. So actually being physically asked in my own home to slow down and prepare the meal, totally simple thing, which I used to do all the time, but to do it in a way that reminds you of on a weekly basis of the creation of the world, yeah. it means something entirely different. And because I forced myself to go slowly into Shabbat, my migraines were much less severe. And I stopped having that, you know, full speed ahead and then crash kind of uh, thing going on. So that is also a spiritual practice that has had really nice physical uh, effects. Oh, you've conjured up pictures in my head. The, f the first is I'd never before thought of God finishing his week of creation and then especially Adam and Eve. And the next day, he just has a migraine. Like, like what done. a headache like, you people are. Yes. I'm taking a day off. <laughs> I'm done. And right. you do it too. Right, right, right. Well, actually, there's a poem in my book of poems on the Jewish year that is one of the lines is about the Sabbath. One of the lines is, on the seventh day, God rested. And my ironic commentary is, maybe it was on the seventh day, God got tired. You know, which is a very simple thing. But of course, you know, God got tired. Let's be real. <laughs> you talked about that we need other people to be who they are to teach us in their faith. I learned more about Sabbath observance mm -hmm. at the Western Wall on a Friday evening. Right. And the joy of welcoming in Shabbat, yeah. I'd never thought of it that way. It was always, oh, this is the day we don't do. We don't do this. Yeah. We don't do this. Instead, it was like, these people are so happy. They're singing. Yeah. It's Shabbat. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, yeah. I learned a lot from that. Yeah. That changed my attitude. So I really relate to what you're saying. Well, I think you speak a truth. And it was very interesting. You remind me of a discussion I had with my mother who got it. You know, I told her I was going to convert to Judaism. And she said, I think I understand it, but as I see what you're doing in terms of, you know, the Sabbath, she grew up in a Methodist tradition, but one that in certain forms of New England Protestantism, some scholars of religion would call them Judaizing, meaning yeah. that they took on some of the practices. They would see if, you know, the first three stars were out after the Sabbath was over and so forth. But she said, so I, I did some of that as a, you know, strict Methodist, but I had to rebel against all of it and become a Unitarian. <laughs> but she also said so much of that strictness was exactly as you say. It was about not doing stuff like we couldn't dance on the Sabbath. You know, my great great-grandfather was a very strict Methodist minister. We couldn't, you know, we could only read certain kinds of things on the Sabbath. We couldn't spend money and so forth. And that was all part of the Christian observance. She said, but you seem to be wanting to do it because you want to, because it's, you know, a good thing yeah. for you. And I said, yeah, that is the way I understood it. And it's actually quite a moving story. My mother never converted to Judaism. She's a good Unitarian to this day. But she was so interested in this idea of a positive commitment to a certain kind of observance that she took a lot of introduction to Judaism classes. And as I was preparing for my bat mitzvah at age 40, learning, Good for you. learning Hebrew and feeling <laughs> like a dunce with all these brilliant 13-year-olds running around um, for their bat, bar mitzvahs, she learned a lot about what observance could look like. As a Unitarian, she does a huge winter solstice festival. She said, could I be Jewish and still do the winter solstice festival? I said, no, mom, I'm so sorry you couldn't. <laughs> so she said, okay, well, I'll stay Unitarian. But, but that's an example of being introduced to an idea in a religion that is compelling, that helps you 
become more who you are. Because you're living in a world that intersects with believers, faithful people in different traditions, and you're even speaking on this tonight. Obviously, yeah. you've thought about this, yeah. and I don't want to spill all the beans, yeah. but most of the world won't be there in that room tonight. Right. Is there one thing, if you could sit people down who are a little hesitant about interacting with mm-hmm. people of other faiths, is there something you would say or encourage? Um, yeah, I would say a couple things. The first is there are so many possibilities for transformative human connection. You never know where they're going to come from. They're deeply unexpected. I would say focus on a third thing Mm. and see what comes up. I teach a class on interfaith conflict and using democratic resources, secular democratic resources to think that through. And I had a student on our Monterey campus in California the Graduate Institute of International Studies, and he was in a small town in California that had a group of Syrian refugees. He said, and I've I've started a, you know, Muslim-Christian dialogue because a lot of the farmers in that small town, they don't know anything. They're anxious. They have that anxiety that you just illustrated. I said, so how's it going? He goes, "Eh, not so great. And I said, okay, so I get why. It's very self-conscious. People are anxious and they're nervous. I said, what are these Syrians good at? And he said, well, interestingly enough, they're farmers and they have, because they're from Syria, they have some really amazing irrigation experience and techniques. I said, I would like you to do an experiment and run a conference on irrigation and what Middle Eastern irrigation techniques look like. Do it for six months and see what happens. And so he did exactly that. And I said, so how's the Christian Muslim dialogue going? He goes, it's amazing. People are talking because the point was irrigation. Yes, yes, yes. But instead, because they totally bonded on that and it was a technical, you know, very secular thing they were focusing on, they became freer to talk about their own ultimate commitments in Christianity and Islam. And now the dialogue is really going. So I would say focus on a third thing that doesn't have to do with there your so identity. There is so much wisdom in that. Maybe it's human that we want to protect our family or, quote, our tribe, whatever it might yeah. be. And so this little wall of fear comes up and the whole us versus them right. is just the worst thing that happens in these sort of dialogues. I love how that bridges and, yeah. or, or just eliminates the wall altogether. It does. And it's it, it sneaks up on you. It's not mm. like you have to create it. You just – experience it as a form of human connection in its own right. And uh, I actually believe that human beings are better not looking at each other, but actually looking out together at a third thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that works in so many different contexts, including the interfaith one. Is there something I should ask you, but I don't know to ask you, or something you would not want to walk away without having <laughs> having pontificated right. or shared? Yeah. That's the better word. Um. I think the one thing I would probably say is part of what really works for interfaith relationships, it seems to me, is looking at it as an everyday ethic rather than a special thing. Ah. Um, It's something that should be part of the ordinary and not the extraordinary. And I think that is the future for interfaith coexistence. I've been speaking in good faith today with Dr. Laurel Patton, president of Middlebury College, and actually quite a down-to-earth and fun-to-speak-to person. <laughs> I, we could spend hours, if, or at least I could. <laughs> Me too. Just hearing what you've, what you've experienced and what you've learned from yeah. that. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I've had a wonderful time talking to you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. That's our time for today. 
We're grateful to Dr. Grant Underwood and the Richard L. Evans Chair of Religious Understanding for arranging this interview. And special thanks to Dr. Lori Patton, President of Middlebury College, for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Our email is ingoodfaith at byu.edu, our Twitter at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.